Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhan. On Halloween. What? It's Halloween. It's With October Tamsin 31st. and Dan. Read the, paper. read the paper. On Halloween. The Halloween edition. Right. Yeah. I, I, I love the costume. I know. We both have outlandish costumes. It's too bad you're all missing this. Outlandish. Yeah. Way to go, Tamsin. Yeah, sadly, it's uh, raining a little yeah, bit here. It is here. raining a little bit here. That's why. In Limeport. Well, hopefully there'll be a break in the weather. We can go out and get some candy. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, you know, we're hard at work here doing the podcast. Although I did see Hazi had an excellent outfit lined up for Halloween. We haven't seen anything from Pepper yet. You know, Hazi had a baseball uniform. A baseball uniform. He looked just like a baseball player. Actually, he looked months. just like you as a young baseball player. Uh, it's, it's hard to look like a baseball player and look like me at the same time. But, uh, uh, let's see if he pulled that off. But speaking of baseball... But he had a second costume. <laughs> Did he? Yeah, you didn't what, look at the, no, I the most recent pictures? What's the recent most What have you been doing? <laughs> Looking at your skeleton earrings, but go ahead, yes. Okay. What, 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 uh, what's the second costume? Well, you, you'll have to go look. No one else is... They're not gonna, people aren't going to know. What's the second costume? I'm not giving it away. All right. I'll look it up while we're talking. The uh, point is that uh, let's stay on baseball. We're in the middle of the World Series. I shouldn't say that. We're toward the end of the World Series. Dead, dead, dead. What? Put down your phone while we're doing the podcast, will you please? I got to see this costume. It's my grandson. The uh, the World Series, as you would call it. The World Series is coming to a close. And, you know, there's so much that the World Series carries besides baseball. But for me, the special meaning is... uh, well, I talked to my mother about this. Your conversation with your mother about this this morning. <laughs> said, and your mother, who lives outside Atlanta. Said, Do you think the Braves have a chance? That's right. And this and the Braves are winning 3-1 to one in the World Series. And this to me, and it's not like your mother doesn't know what's 3-1. to one. No, I, she said she didn't watch the whole no, game. No, no, no. So knows. maybe she thought, this, maybe she thought the Astros won and that it was now 2-2. No, no, no. She didn't think that. First of all. There's one clear. Your mother's 96. God bless her. Number one. But number two, she knows the Braves are up 3-1. She lives in the Atlanta area. She can't not know that. This sums up your mother's approach to life. Okay? She's got the team that's up 3-1, to one, and her attitude is, do you think they have a chance? <laughs> Which is, yes. The answer is they have a very good chance, particularly since the way the Astros are managing the team with Dusty Baker, their chances are excellent. Because the Astros blew that game yesterday by taking out the pitcher Zach Greinke after four shutout innings because somebody did some analytics upstairs and decided that would be enough pitching for Zach Greinke, who may be going to the Hall of Fame at some point, but was only allowed to pitch four innings yesterday. Someone should have counted that there were, quote, five innings left in the game, and they didn't have five good relievers left to pitch. So instead of uh, winning the game 2 nothing, which is what the... The score was when Zach Greinke left. They lost 3-2. So uh, that's the way that goes. But I'm not going to dwell on that. And it's not like the Astros don't have a chance, as your mother reminds us. Um, <laughs> there are a couple of very interesting stories. Uh, just quickly, I don't know that much about the Braves. You would think I'd know more, but I don't. But there are two guys who have, a, who have really risen to prominence in this series from the Braves who weren't that well-known before. One is this fellow, Eddie Rosario, who was just below all-star status for the last four or five years, played for teams like Minnesota, really blossomed now after a midseason trade uh, to the Braves. But what fascinates me about Rosario is, uh, besides the fact that he's hitting up a storm, is that he travels with his own barber. He has his own barber. 
who goes with him from city to city so he can get a haircut every other day. And the theory behind that is, uh, well, you know, you've heard the people say when watching baseball, he looks good up there, mm-hmm. like he might get a hit. Well, he literally looks good up there because he's got his hair and his beard trimmed exactly right. And as they say in the New York Times, uh, quoting another player, uh, if you look good, you feel good. And if you feel good, you play good. So, you know, I thought that was interesting. But the most interesting story to me is not even that. Something even more interesting. I know you're fascinated with a barber story. Trevor Matzik. You know, if we were watching a game yeah. and I brought up somebody's hairdo, you'd say Tamsin, Tamsin, Tamsin. He's got his own hair. Not about the hair. He's got his own hair cutter. I uh, know, but, but here you are fascinated about it. I tell you usual. And I'm not even allowed to comment you on it. You can comment on it. No, you're not. You got me no. flustered. It's Tyler Matzik. Tyler Matzik. Tyler Matzik has been an unbelievably great relief pitcher for the Braves during this series. And the amazing thing about Tyler Matzik is his journey. He's... He was drafted in the first round, okay, of the of the uh, draft from the of the amateur draft, uh, and that was uh, oh I don't know, let's see what year was that? That was about 2011-2012. Colorado Rockies did very well right away. Uh, came to the majors two or three years later, which is a good timetable. Had a great 2014 his first year. He gets to the team in 2015. He can't throw a strike. He has what are called the yips. That's what they call them, the yips. Mm-hmm. And in golf, it's like you can't putt. In baseball, it's when pitchers can't throw the ball over the plate. And it's uh, it's a mental thing, right? And it, it, it's so bad, you know, he would have, uh, not only can he not throw strikes in games, he would have a catch with somebody, and he would throw the ball like 20 feet away from them. He couldn't throw it to them. And, you know, they talk about it here, and it's a psychological thing. He said it's a fear thing, and it causes your body to sort of tense up and freeze, and you just can't perform. So he, you know, he... he you know, what? I never know where the ball's going to go when I throw. <laughs> there are other reasons that the, for that besides the yips. In his case, <laughs> all right, he so, had all the so, skills. All right, I, we get it. He's got the yips. He finds somebody to help him. The team drops him. A yip master? Yeah, he, yeah, he, a yip master. A guy is a former Navy SEAL who... Had had his own baseball career cut short because he got the yes, and there's no magic here. It's just you know he has him doing these mental exercises. You got to keep throwing. You got to keep throwing, and he actually gets to a point in 2017. He just says the heck with it and he quits, and but then he decides to come back and try it one more time, right? And what he ends up doing, and you'll appreciate this because you've had some experience with Facebook. So he still has the yips. No, no, no. In 2018. He uses Facebook Marketplace like you, Tamsin Granger, use Facebook Marketplace, but in his case, to find a team, an independent team with which he can play, he takes an ad out on Facebook Marketplace, Mm -hmm. and he finds a taker, a team that will let him play for them in Texas as an independent league team, in which he's making practically nothing, but they'll give him the ball every fifth day, and he can work it out. And he eventually works it out, sort of, and after uh, a year or two, uh, in, at the end of 2019, some brave scout persuades the tire-ups to, to sign him, and they sign him. And this is a huge project, but he's sort of worked his way back. And uh, from the, those depths, he's now pitching on the biggest stage in the World Series just a year or so later, and he is unhittable, throwing strike after strike. Tyler Matzik. The yips a, could come back at any time. They could. 
And he has, you know, he's met all these people on this journey, playing with these independent on teammates. Uh, and he's played with these Chinese players who are learning how to play baseball, to participate in the World Baseball Classic, and he's getting messages from all over the world. They're saying, Tyler's doing so great, Tyler's doing so great. It is unbelievable. Okay. So, in any event, the only other thing, I, I know you're unimpressed. Um, no, it's just usually you have... Let me give you a reason. I mean, this is very much one of those human interest stories you see on the morning news know, these days. I, yeah. I aspire to that. Is, Look, all right. is that where you heard it? You're challenging me. You watch the TV right. this morning no. on Sunday news. Can I give you a reason what? to watch why you have to watch today's game, which could be the final game? Really? This will be the last time <laughs> you'll ever be able to see a pitcher bat. Oh. Because starting next year, it's expected that the National League will also adopt a designated hitter rule. So if you want to see pitcher bat, this is it. There's only a few pitchers you want to see bat. You don't want to see any of them bat. But to, if well, you, what about? At best, they're as good as a middling uh, regular player. Okay? Otani's going to keep batting. But he plays, they put him in a different position. He actually plays a designated hitter role when he's not pitching. Well, what about sometimes DeGrom would be the only guy getting a hit in the game? That is true. That's true. That's true. Uh, DeGrom would be an example of a guy who will be missed batting. But the fact of the matter is, he only stands out because he's playing on the Mets. All right? He's playing (laughs) with a bunch of guys who can't hit. There are other teams in the league, many, who have people in the roster who can hit, and the pitcher doesn't stand out so much. All right? Uh, and the Grammy right. always wants a shortstop so, in college. You know that. So are we upset about this? Is, it, is no. this another sign I've, of the I've, apocalypse? I've made my piece of it. No, there are much stronger signs of the apocalypse than this. Uh, this is not a sign of the apocalypse. Um, and there's some people, some pitchers who really like to hit. But most of them, it turns out, don't like to hit. And they're relieved. Okay. They don't want to hit. And frankly, it's, it, I, I'm beginning to be won over that you're better off with a designated hitter role. But uh, we can get into a deep discussion about this. I don't think you want to. Uh, so I'm going to give you a break, and we can move on to greener pastures, all right? But tonight, your last chance to see a pitcher hit. All right. I'll try to stay awake. <laughs> I'll do your best. Um, That's all okay, we can so ask. All we can ask. My uh, next story yes. is about... Uh, a female author being awarded a literary prize right. worth like one million more than one million, yeah. Is it and um, in Spain, right? Okay, Spanish writer, right? Carmen Mola, right? And uh, she, uh, the book is called The Gypsy Bride, mm-hmm. and it's about a, a female, I guess, police detective, mm-hmm. right? And so it's you know right up our alley, you know. Yeah, uh, right up, right up we, your alley. Could, yeah, I could be. You should read reading it. Reading it? No, I, I can't read it because it's in Spanish. I, they haven't I, translated. No, I don't think they have. Oh, I I, I, I just went on Amazon. I didn't yeah. find anything of it. So they have the whole ceremony to present this prize, yeah. the Planeta Prize, right. Right. and what it is is really a um, a what do you call it? Um, it's a, a commitment to publish the book, so mm-hmm. it's a commission. I don't know what what, yeah, well, what, what word you have in mind. Yeah, you know, the money you get ahead of time, yeah, right? Before you, it's published, right? Uh, anyway, uh, so the king, the king of Spain, is there at the ceremony, really, and they, uh, you know, call out uh, the name Carmen Mola, and three men walk up to receive the prize. 
So it turns out that these three guys have been uh, writing her books. Well, writing under a pseudonym. Writing under a pseudonym, yeah. yes. A pen name. And as you might expect, uh, some people are outraged by this. <laughs> they, they feel these men are taking advantage of the enthusiasm for promoting uh, female writers. Right. And female, you know, maybe even, you know, female uh, um, characters. Right. But, as it being in the lead, etc. But, but this was not a prize just for female writers. This is just a general prize. No, no, no. Uh, but uh, they, people feel that uh, it was a deception. Mm-hmm. Clearly it was a deception. Even the, um, you know, one of the editors who's promoting the books, yeah. you know, at the uh, publisher... Uh, does a little, uh, I don't know, at one point says this Carmen Mola is a pseudonym, right. but also more than implies, kind of quotes a uh, bio- biographical snippet, as it says here in the article, that states uh, the writer is a female university professor who lives in Madrid with her husband and three sons. So the, that, that helped promote the the assumption that the writer was a female. Right, because... But, and, and then it was... The uh, publisher said that. That was exposed to be a lie at, at yes. the ceremony. Yes, uh, Yeah, well, there actually so, were... There were one or two prizes, I think they mentioned in the article, that, that were focused on female authors or something. Or some, something that was promoting female that the, the book did benefit from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that probably grates a little bit more, mm-hmm. you would think. But uh, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, uh... well, these guys are saying, how could we foresee yeah. the success? I'm with them. We didn't know. How did they know? Um, well, they know? I, I don't know. Well, let me ask you if this you, If you're getting together and you're, you know, coming up with a book, you may say, well, how about this? This would sell. Right. But, but isn't the So key, it's not purely... But isn't the interesting thing about this... Creative not, not, inspiration. Yeah, but... The, By the way, the book is called The Gypsy Bride, oh, okay. in case you do want to read it. Well, I thought... Yeah, there's a couple different books. The new one's called The Gypsy Bride. No, 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 no. The 2018 book. Oh, it's called it's Gypsy, Gypsy Bride. Right. The one that's going to be published oh, right, with right, right. this uh, forward, yeah. forward... Is Whatever. that the word? Yeah. Um, is uh, The Beast. Advance is the word. Advance, yeah. yes. I knew it was something, something like moving that. in that right. direction. Right. Uh, La Bestia. Right, and that's a little bit different. But yeah. Uh, the, uh, yeah, it's not a pure detective. The, um, it's a historical thriller right, right. setting set during the cholera right. epidemic no one, in 1834. Say, no one wants to so, that. well, you know, clearly these guys have their eye to current events, right? You know, but and what might let set. me ask you this question, okay? If you're looking at this from even a feminist perspective, which is, I, I'm not, but uh, you know, someone might be, maybe even you, is it isn't it more important that the protagonist is female, that it's about a female detective who is sought after by, in this case, I think a a male subordinate, in in a sense, which sort of flips the script on a lot of this stuff. Isn't that a more significant departure than than being written by a man versus a woman? No, 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 no. No? it's uh, the men get all the money, as usual. Okay? It's about the money? Yeah. It's about the the, the Benjamins? The men get the prize, the men get the money. Oh, man. They have to support families then. I mean, you know, you well, understand. Women that. don't have families? All right. I'm What's wrong kidding. with you? Just kidding. 
That was just a little joke. Mm. A little sexist joke. Anyway, yeah. you know, the B might be a good book. It's very popular. Yeah. Well, look, I, it's, it's a huge It success. is a, your alley, the, the, the detective series. I'm going to wait for the PBS series. You won't have to wait long. I, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's coming. I'm sure that would be fun. Time. It would be fun if it's in Spanish. You know, it's probably they probably had the series all set, and then this came out, and then they have to scotch it because it's men writers. No, so all publicity is good publicity. Yeah, maybe. All right, so uh, Mort Saul died. So uh, Mort Saul, very interesting guy, but a name I haven't heard for a heck of a long time. So, it's so perhaps the last time you watched Ed Sullivan? Right, so, uh, well, not quite that long. But, um, so Mort Saul was a, a comic, and a politically oriented comic, uh, and very urban style, very kind of quick-witted, uh, sardonic humor, very sharp, um, and uh, sometimes even harsh a little bit. Talked about current events, but I, when it, when he died, I, I remember I said to you immediately. So you know, did you were you that familiar with Morsel? Wasn't he a New York thing? And you told me two things: number one, and well, you, no, number two, that it turns out he's not from New York and had right. very little connection to New York. I guess right. his family's from Canada in some respects. And he went to uh, California, and he developed as a comic in San Francisco in the Hungry Eye, which was the uh, nightclub that he worked at. Although he worked his way back to New York, which is interesting. But number one, that you were very familiar with him from, as you just said a moment ago, the Ed Sullivan Show. I had forgotten. Well, the thing is, I guess we assumed down in uh, Kensington, Maryland, that all those fast talking (laughs) comedians were from New York. Yeah, so did I. But uh, not so. The guys with the tight suits. Right, take it easy, Tim. It's you know it's a family show. Uh, yeah. Um, well, here's some. So anyway, so I'm reading his obituary, which I have more detail about him. And uh, he was uh, it described you know as being at the vanguard, if not the leader, uh, if not the initiator of a whole brand of comedy that represented a departure. From like Bob Hope and Milton Berle, Honey Youngman, Take My Wife, Please. It was uh, political humor, uh, commenting on events of the day, um, and uh, sharper, um, more sarcastic, more sardonic. And as exemplars, they list in the obituary Lenny Bruce, Dick Gregory, Woody Allen, Jonathan Winters, Joan Rivers, George Carlin, Richard Pryor. But they describe Mortsall as the first. The originator? The originator. They literally say in the obituary, that these comics followed in his wake. Hmm. And of course, that wake goes on to include, you know, Jonathan Stewart and people like that. So um, it was a big deal. And what I also didn't realize, how big a deal he was, uh, not only was he successful in terms of having his, you know, his nightclub act be successful, but he, you know, he hosted the Academy Awards. He hosted the first Grammy Awards. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, and he was really a departure. He was considered an intellectual comedian. Uh, dismissed by some, Bob Hope said, once teased Mort Saul as, quote, the favorite comedian of nuclear physicists everywhere. So, uh, <laughs> you know, he was a little too smart for some people. But uh, his career seemed to derail... Um, as perhaps it was inevitably the case, um, following the um, Kennedy assassination, because, because he became obsessed, really, with what he felt was a cover-up involved with the uh, 
investigation that followed uh, Warren Commission, for those who don't recall, Earl Warren was a Supreme Court justice. When Kennedy was shot, they asked the Supreme Court justice to head a commission to write a report about what, uh, who was behind the assassination. And a lot of people criticized uh, the Warren report. Uh, Mort Saul was caught up in that and apparently kind of lost his bearings on that. And also, frankly, he was kind of a, a difficult guy. At one point, uh, somebody's quoted as saying that Walt Mort Saul had a great knack for making ex-friends. Uh, he, he, he was just an impossibly difficult person. So he, you know, he was giving, making, throwing jibes at Eisenhower. He supported Kennedy. He wrote jokes for Kennedy. But as soon as Kennedy was elected, you know, Kennedy was who he was talking about and making jokes about and criticizing. He just criticized everybody. Well, the Kennedy administration didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he lost a lot of friends along the way. Um, and people were ultimately, uh, you know, he alienated everybody is, is really the short uh, version of events. Uh, so he ends up kind of disregarded and forgotten. Frankly, look, he's in his 90s. Not that many people are considered really hot comics in their 90s. So that was going to happen. But um, a tremendously influential figure. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was hysterically funny. Okay. Of course, I was like eight. <laughs> you know? And, yeah. uh, but I, you know, I said, that, you know, give it to Eisenhower. Go ahead, you know? <laughs> well, that's when I was more like five. But uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, highly influential. As influential as anybody you can think of, really. When you think about all those people. Mort Saul. Yeah. So... Um... Time for a museum update. Oh, yes. Sure, Tennessee. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. Go ahead. So, I mean, we are, I think, getting closer and closer to going to New York. Closer, right? yes, yes. Yes. Because you've got to go back to your office, clean right. out your office. Right. And uh, I've got to see some art that wasn't done by children or grandchildren. Okay. Um, I, well, that's silly. There's plenty of art out, out here. Yeah. But um, anyway... Uh, one idea would be to uh, go to the Morgan Library and Museum. Well, you've been there before. Yes, but uh, they have a, a show there now, Van Eyck to Mondrian, 300 Years of Collecting in Dresden. And uh, so there's an essay in the Wall Street Journal by Keith Christensen, who is curator emeritus at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So he knows stuff. And it's actually a very well-written essay. Um, It's from this, uh, they have a column called uh, Masterpiece that's on the back page Mm -hmm. of the review section of Mm -hmm. the Wall Street Journal. And somebody writes about some masterpiece. And uh, sometimes they're well-written and sometimes less so. This is actually a very well-written essay, and it simply talks about um, a preliminary drawing done by Jan van Eyck somewhere around uh, 1435, a long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, f- in preparation for a portrait uh, of a, an older man, perhaps uh, Niccolo Alberghetti, who was a, um, a diplomat uh, working under... Uh, Pope Martin V. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a painting, there's a Finnish painting of this person mm-hmm. uh, in the Kunsthistorisches Museum, which mm-hmm. you've been to in Vienna. Uh-huh. And uh, quite a, a nice uh, portrait. 
Um, and uh, but here we have a little drawing, like uh, eight and a half by seven inches, mm-hmm. and it's it's quite wonderful to see. It's done in metal point, that is to say, silver, um, silver point, most of it, and a little bit of gold point on specially treated paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like you can draw with graphite, right. you can draw with silver, right. and um, it's uh, you know painstakingly, you know, beautifully detailed, but it also has notes in the margins for the colors of everything. So we can, you know, have a view into Van Eyck's process. Uh, and, uh, and you know, and the finished uh, uh, portrait, as I said, is quite wonderful as well. And uh, Christensen kind of extols Van Eyck uh, for being one of the people who can achieve uh, recording the external appearance of a sitter uh, as with such perfection so as to um, create, describe that person's inner character as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, very often you get a great painting, but it doesn't look much like the, the person or a, you know, a wonderfully detailed painting, but still doesn't really tell you about the person. Van Eyck, uh, he felt, has a way of um, creating such an image as it you know speaks to you about the person as well so um anyway that that was a nice little essay beautiful little drawing and uh i'm you know look forward to perhaps going to new well, york well we're gonna go that. to new york i mean uh, although you know it's it's been a while and uh, the question is uh, what's the subway like these days right well we don't have to take the subway no you know you know. there are ways around that there are ways around um, but we'd also like to go see Carolina Change. Yeah, we're going to see some stuff. That, yeah, because that got a very good review. And we're going to see Assassins in uh, in December, right? Yes. So that, uh, that much we know. Yes, we got some stuff. Lined we just got to get off the Schneid here. You know, I uh, yeah, yes, we. Gotta, but, I, but you know, as next, soon as soon as the death cleanse is over, we haven't spoken about that. Yeah, death cleanse being distinguished from the pandemic. The death cleanse yeah, is being yeah. getting rid of our stuff. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I realized I should put a couple of Mortsall lines in because people, I, I, I'm not sure I communicate anything about Mortsall. So and after the, you've done that, I'm going to go a little more deeply into Jan Van Eyck. Okay, let's do that. So, <laughs> here's a here's a Mortsall thing. In one early routine, he declared that Brooks Brothers stores didn't have mirrors. Customers just stood in front of one another to see how they looked. How's that, huh? <laughs> hilarious. And here's what he said about capital punishment. He said, I'm for capital punishment. You've got to execute people. How else are they going to learn? <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Yes. You want to make your Von Eyck points? Or yeah, that, that's, that's some real New York humor there. I'm, All right. I'm, thinking. I'm not getting it across. I mean, uh, get on YouTube. Look up more and so. Um, so this struck me. I'm not sure it struck you as much, but I don't fall for this kind of stuff. I'm kind of a hard case. But there's there's an article called 70th Birthday Party Climbing El Capitan. And it's a story about a woman named Deirdre Wallenick who um, (laughs) had lived a very relatively sedentary lifestyle uh, in in New York 
in her 50s, she took up, uh, well, in her 40s, she learned taught herself to swim. In her 50s, she took up running. And at 60s, she took up rock climbing and, uh, and then made a record-breaking ascent at the age of 66 of El Capitan, which is a very difficult slope to climb in Yosemite National Park. And then uh, four years later, just very recently on her 70th birthday, climbed it again, uh, albeit in a somewhat easier well, she's path. She's climbed it like a ascent. zillion times. She's climbed it a few times. Not a zillion. Uh, I thought it was like no, 192 no, times. No, that was a different person that we're talking about there. Yeah. But, uh, but she does have a big advantage in terms of rock climbing because her son is a, I think, world-famous uh, rock climber, right? Uh, so there, there was that book... I'm sorry, that book, that movie, which was called uh, Solo something? Free Solo. Free Solo, right. Alex Honnold is her son. He's the guy who climbs El Capitan with no ropes, with no anything, in that documentary, Free Solo. So, well, the, so, the story of how she starts rock climbing is is cute. Yeah. Because he's injured. Right. So he comes home. He's hanging around the house. Right. And she says... Oh, why do we go to the climbing studio? Yeah, get him back into it. Get him yeah. perk up spirit. This is, and, uh, this is 10 years gonna, ago. She's, she's going to go halfway up and she's then come down. Right, she's 16. She, 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 she gets uh, hooked. She gets hooked. She does like 20 climbs but up listen, and down the climbing wall. Listen to where this is. So they have this interview. They say, well, where did you stand physically? Where did your life stand when right before this was going on? You know, when you, you, when you took uh, Alex out and then you got hooked yourself. So I was in total turmoil. My husband, Charles... Fell over dead at 55. They were divorced. One month after I divorced. Well, yeah, people don't divorce and they don't care if the guy dies. They they divorced the month later he died. She's the executor of the estate. You know what a headache that is. So she's in, in, in turmoil there. And Alex, of course, had almost died while snowshoeing. Uh, so she was kind of at low ebb. And she takes this up. And again, what impresses me is she was not a physical person. She was not a physical person. Matter of fact, they talk about her life, which was in, in Queens, basically, as, as I recall it. And she was into all kinds of things. She taught several languages. She was an accomplished person academically. She, she moved out uh, toward to near Yosemite, and she was teaching... Um, I'm sorry, she started an orchestra out there. She's very musically inclined, but nothing physical. And then at the age of 50 and then 60... Fifty, she starts running. Sixty, she's rock climbing. She's going up El Capitan at the age of seventy. This is kind of, to me, kind of insane. You know, I mean, I, you're not impressed. No, it's not that I'm not impressed. It's just, you know, it's a real, it's a real departure. I'm not saying that no, she's so physically of gifted. Of course, she, you know, founds orchestras. All right, so that might be might be and, exaggerated. Uh, I don't know, but you know. Speaks ninety-two languages right. and teaches herself to swim. Right. You know, it just—it's wonderful. It just um, <laughs> okay. You know, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that information. Right. Like, am I supposed to be depressed? No, because no one wants trying to make you depressed. That, you know, here's what I I'm mean, saying. No, is no. this what we aspire to? No, no, no. I don't know. Here, that's not you my know? point. My point what? is this: you're missing it entirely. It, I don't care about the orchestra. I don't care about the language. My point is, all those are intellectual pursuits. She's a non-physical person. And then at the age of, you know, close to 60, she says, well, why don't I do something really physical? And she gets into this. It doesn't make any sense to me. That seems unbelievable to me. So they ask her, what would you tell people who seem to be stuck? She says, you first have to figure out why you think you can't do something and ask yourself if that's valid. Uh, There's somebody every step of your life telling you what to eat, what to wear, 
uh, that you can't sleep without taking this drug. It's all nonsense. You can decide what you're capable of. Fill in the blank. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, look, it's a that look, that's yeah. what that it's the departure that strikes me. It's the idea that uh, she goes from being a relatively sedentary person to to hey, doing what she's doing. People, there are people who try to do that. To do what? Make a, a big so, change in their yeah, lives? Yeah, who suddenly, you know, I, I'm I'm willing to believe there are plenty of people who walk into uh, climbing studios and try to climb, go up a climbing wall, and uh, they don't get up, and they walk out, and they never come back. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I, I yeah, and and she says that it was hard to do. She said it was. She had to force herself to do it. She yeah. had to so train I mean, to go something back about her wall. her build her. Mental capacity Listen, the fact made that her, her more predisposed. There's to no this. question. If her Look, son is a champion climber, she's he's built for this, whether she realized it or not. I even think you could have a champion climber son who would just say, "Mom, leave me alone. <laughs> you uh, know, get out of here." That Go, was the hardest why, part. Why don't, why don't you crochet? Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, you know, it's well, it's a nice it's a nice story, but it, it just doesn't. It's not actually, I think, that helpful to the average it, bear. No, I'm not here to be helpful. I'm just saying it struck me. As unusual, okay? Struck me as unusual. Highly unusual. Okay. Well, here's something that isn't unusual. Okay, what's The that? rise of the designer deli. Right, okay. Right, suddenly we're seeing fancy schmancy Jewish delis all over the place. Well, are, well nearby we are, that's yeah. for sure. And you, we recently had uh, a new deli, the Borscht Belt. Right. Open near us. Right. You were initially quite excited. I, I just, yeah, I, in concept, yeah. Yeah, except well, to, I didn't know, know what it was. I didn't know it's, what it was. It's a Disney version of a Jewish deli. You're right. You're right. Okay. It's a Disney version of a Jewish. I haven't even. In fairness, we haven't been there, but what we read about caused us not to <laughs> well, be. How there. can we go there? We don't go there. They we, charge twenty dollars for a sandwich. Right. It's like it's like a parody <laughs> of a Jewish deli. We have our own place, which you know is called. No, we go to a place called Moishenitzis. Moishenitzi. That's a real place. Yes. Right? Even though it's a little bit of a drive. And now, even that is not such an old place. It's, it's, no, but, uh, it, but it, it's very... It unreal. opened in 1996. The word design has never been applied in the same <laughs> sentence as Moish and Itzy. No. As Moish or Itzy. It's, it's right. completely undesigned. All right? Yes. There's no there's no design concept That's there right. they're, they're, whatsoever. They're pumping out the chicken soup. But the, right. the soup is good. Right. The bagels are good. Right. All right, chop liver is good. The hollow is good. The matzo balls are good. Yeah, right. and they're even a little cranky when you make your order. Yeah, they're and they're not, a little cranky. And they're not trying to be. <laughs> it comes naturally. It so, comes naturally. Yes, um, that's right. So we have that. So you know, it's our little uh, oasis right. out here in the country, um, introduced to us by Dixon, right. because it's near Dixon's Hospital. Wasn't well, it? And so people in the know. Yeah, working this, around the clock, no to eat there. But this article. So anyway, this is about, is about uh, a it's, fancy um, place. Uh, it's the article's written by Carrie Jacobs, and she's, um, you know, I, I guess uh, talking to someone who's uh, describing this great uh, um, Jewish deli that they go to in Tribeca that's been there forever. Right. You know, and uh, it's called Zucker's. And so Jacobs looks it up, and uh, you know it hasn't been there forever. It's been there since two thousand six, yeah. and and you know it uh, came about because uh, two guys got tired of waiting online at Russ and Daughters, 
Well, Rustadotter um, sounds like a real place. It, yeah, well, it is, yeah. and you know, and there are some. Well, the real the real Jewish delis in New York are dwindling. Right. Sure. Right. Um, so you need you know, but they are being replaced by these uh, you know state of the art uh, fancy fancy. Well, Right. Jewish Even Russendorter is a kind of high-end place, but yeah. yeah. Um, and so anyway, and they, you know, there are examples of this all over the country, apparently. Really? Not, yeah. That's a Not thing? just in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And one of the ones they cite is Pearly's in Richmond. And we've been to Pearly's. Yeah. And you know, it's not bad. It's cute, but it's it's like a take on the, on the Jewish no, deli. No, 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 no. It's uh, the the decor is uh, pretty old school. Yeah. Because it it was a Jewish deli. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that opened in like I don't know in the sixties. Right. And uh, went through various iterations. Yeah. And then shut down in two thousand thirteen, and and then this new group bought it and opened you know their own. Uh, Jewish deli as kind of an homage yeah. to the original Pearly's, well, I guess. Right. I don't know what it. Anyway, it's pretty good. It's very good. Although I have to say, when we go to Richmond and uh, um, and our friends recommend, here's where you should go. Yeah. And uh, our friends, the Gompers, the Gompers said, "Oh, you got to go to Pearly's. Yeah, yeah that's they got it, great, you know, Jewish food." Yeah, the, the, the Gompers like, know from Jewish why food. Would like, we, uh, why uh, would we drive all the way from New York yeah, to go to and New Jersey? Deep. To have Jewish food in Virginia. That was recommended by the Gompers. Yeah, yeah uh, right. Yeah. So, but, and yet, it, it's not that... Well, don't they use the word authentic in a funny way in this design article? It's a, they call it authentic Jewish delis. That's the way you described it to me. And uh, and these places are anything but uh, authentic. I mean, um, Borscht Belt would be... Uh, <laughs> well, in fact, in fact, the Borscht Belt, um, their signature Borscht Belt breakfast sandwich yeah. has bacon on it. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I remember. So, so here you'll have to remind me. I don't remember. Did we yeah. go together to the Second Avenue Deli or Katz's Deli? Second Avenue. Did we? Yeah. And that was an event just to get a sandwich. And yeah. I shouldn't say a sandwich. Got a half a sandwich because that, that's, that's the crazy yeah, you life. Can't eat you get pounds sandwich. and pounds yeah. of corned beef on a sandwich. I mean, it took courage just to stand on line and deal with the guy behind the line and to have sort of the tip jar that you had to really uh, visit in order to get any kind of service. Uh, to get your half sandwich, and it was uh, it was a trip. I guess that was authentic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, one day the boar spell counts, and it is very close by. It's hard not to go. Can't no, we'll go. But it, we'll go. but it is funny that uh, you know everything's cool eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And I I gotta say, I prefer a deli that's you know doesn't look quite that nice. Well, you- I, I like to think people are. You know, just into the the food. The food. Yeah. Well, that moistness yeah. is definitely your place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So finally, uh, and this is not a, a big story because this guy is also largely forgotten. Uh, Arnold Hano died at the age of ninety nine. I mean, that's what we're learning because uh, you know between more Saul in his nineties and Arnold Hano, at the time people knew Ar- Ar- Arnold Hano's name, but it was a heck of a long time ago. And it turns out the his most famous book, his sports book writer. His most famous book was the first one he wrote when he was a relatively young man. And it was called uh, A Day in the Bleachers. And uh, what's interesting about this was he was trying to break into writing sports. And what he did was, um, as a very young man, he went to the World Series, the first World Series game in 1954 between the Giants and the Indians. um, And he sat in the bleachers. 
for the purpose of taking notes about his experience in the bleachers. Uh, and it's, uh, it's interesting. They, they, they have passages from the book, and he's describing what it's like being in the bleachers, and it's just such a different world. At one point, there's a guy in the bleachers taking up a collection to buy watches for the players on the Giants to show their appreciation for winning so many games that they went to the World Series. All right. And this is just this is what's happening in the bleachers. And mm-hmm. the guys in the bleachers are not loaded with money, but they're putting their money together to buy watches for the play. I mean, the world has changed. That sounds quite like a scam, no, to it, be honest. It, it might have been a scam. Uh, and the other guys in the bleachers are chatting up the, the pitchers in the bullpen. But uh, as it happened, and I think it helped his career and perhaps it even helped the Giants, that was one of the most famous games in World Series history. That's the one he chose because it's the game in which uh, Willie Mays made what many people call the greatest catch of all time, uh, in which uh, Vic Wirtz of the Indians in the uh, ninth inning hit a ball that was going to win the game. That was deep, deep to center field. And Apollo Grant was famous for having a very deep center field. And Willie Mays runs with his back to home plate and catches it uh, over his shoulder and then whizzes around and throws the ball in so the runners couldn't advance. And it enables the Giants to win the game in extra innings. And the Giants, who were big underdogs in the series, end up winning uh, the series. Uh, so he has a very detailed account of that event at a time where you didn't have a lot of film and, and uh, a lot of media. Uh, and he helps popularize the catch itself. And uh, remember, the book is republished. Uh, I'm looking at the title page, the 50th anniversary of, quote, the catch. Uh, his his writing helps the catch, helps the Giants, and... Um, and basically, it helps his career because he happened to be at the right game. He had, and I, when I was growing up, I was reading books by Arnold Pino about sports and about the Giants. And they have one little interesting note that when they republished uh, the book in 2004, which was the 50th anniversary of the catch, he had a, an afterword based on events uh, that took place a year or two after the game, 1955. Apparently, Willie Mays um, was introduced to uh, Craig uh uh, well, Don Lytle's son. Don Lytle was the relief pitcher who was pitching at the moment when the guy hit the ball. Don Lytle introduces to him sons, Corey, and Mays, without even thinking, says, you know, I'm breaking in a new glove. I'm getting rid of my old glove. And he hands the kid the glove. Oh my the gosh. glove that made the catch without any thought about it. <laughs> and the kid goes on to use it in Little League. <laughs> and then it occurs to him years later that the Hall of Fame might be interested Mm-hmm. And he calls the Hall of Fame. Of course, they're more than a little bit interested. Um, and uh, and they end with a quote from Hano, in which he says, baseball still remains our greatest game. It's also the simplest. It often comes down to a boy, his baseball glove, and a hero. Which uh, I think is the best thing you can say about baseball, especially as, as we end the season perhaps tonight. Last Get time. ready, Viv. Get ready, Viv. All right. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See you next week.